Lord, we do thank you for your great mercy to us. And we pray that, uh, again, you would be merciful to us in giving us wisdom and discernment on your word as we uh, dive into another section of Leviticus 10. I pray that your spirit would um, not only enlighten our minds, but inflame our hearts to love your law and to love Christ, who is our king, who gives us the law. I pray that um, we would be challenged and encouraged by our great King this morning. It's in His name that we pray. Amen. You've got this time, don't you? This is—I know they're not going to get here till here. It's, no, it's great. It's uh, well, it says a lot about us, actually. All right, we are in Leviticus 10, uh, starting in verse eight. Uh, last week, uh, we talked about Nadab and Abihu, and uh, that's the immediate scene going into our next passage. We're going to go through 8 uh, through four, uh, 15 today. Nadab and Abihu approached God in an unauthorized way, um, in a way it says the Lord did not command, and taking him what the text called Strange fire, unauthorized fire, foreign fire, different translations have different things there. Um, That's the backdrop of this next section. Nadab and Abihu get consumed by the fire of God. What would you expect to come next? If you're writing a book, what would you expect to come next? Something light and fluffy to even it out. Okay. Light and fluffy to even it out. Really, what, what would you think would be the next thing? Aaron gets mad at God. Aaron gets mad at God. We saw that he kept silent. Maybe that's the initial response, but over, over some time he gets to brew about it. Why? The question. Or a here's why that happened section. A here's why that happened section. That would be nice, wouldn't it? Look at what we have. Verse 8. And the Lord spoke to Aaron, saying, This is what you expect? (laughs) Drink no wine or strong drink, you or your sons with you, when you go into the tent of meeting, lest you die. It shall be a statute forever throughout your generations. You are to distinguish between the holy and the common, and between the unclean and the clean. And you are to teach the people of Israel all the statutes that the Lord has spoken to them by Moses. Moses spoke to Aaron and to Eleazar and Ithamar, his surviving sons. Take the grain offering that is left of the Lord's food offerings and eat it unleavened beside the altar. For it is most holy. You shall eat it in a holy place because it is your due and your son's due from the Lord's food offerings, for so I am commanded. But the breast that is waved and the thigh that is contributed, you shall eat in a clean place, you and your sons and your daughters with you, for they are given as your due and your son's due from the sacrifices of the peace offerings of the people of Israel. The thigh that is contributed and the breast that is waved, they shall bring with the food offerings of the fat pieces to wave for a wave offering before the Lord 
and it shall be yours and your sons with you as a due forever, as the Lord has commanded. What an odd place to go. We have this huge scene, this very dramatic judgment on two leaders of Israel. Don't drink? Really? What's going on here? Why would he go there? Well, first of all, do you notice anything unusual about this particular conversation? Who's speaking to whom? The Lord is speaking to Aaron, not Moses. To Aaron, not Moses. The Lord is speaking to Aaron, not Moses. What's significant about that? It's always been to Moses, right? This is the first and only time that God speaks directly to Aaron right after he consumes his sons. Now, would you expect in our culture, they're there, I know I did this, I may have overreacted a little bit, you know? Would that what we would expect something along those lines? It's going to be okay. What does he do? He just continues. And he gives him a command. Why go here with a command? Why not? Remember what I told you. Pull coals out from under the altar, not from another hearth. Remember what I told you. I mean, if you're going to do commands, wouldn't that be the way to go? Ah. Uh. Rather than, okay, so the idea is if he's grieving, he wants to go numb, so he's going to get an intoxicating. Well, that's an interesting point, and some people have, have posited that as, a, as an option. Um, some of the smart guys uh, also say that it's like a polemic, an argument against Canaanite practice of you know, using intoxicating drink, getting drunk for their, their worship of their gods. Um, another smart guy said, that uh, it, it was a ban, it continues the ban uh, against leaven among the sacred things because, you know, wine is fermented. Uh, others uh, see it as a sign of being set apart from religious for religious duties like the Nazarites, kind of that idea. Others still say that it was a, a warning, don't mourn like many do, who turn to drink to drown their sorrows, so to speak. Yeah. It's, it's also, it seems like um, since he's a leader, he's a teacher, that the regulations for him are that much more stringent because of the position that he's in. Right. So it's almost like God is saying, I mean, from what happened before, my glory and my word is paramount to all things, over your family and over everything. And how you react to this is of the utmost importance. If people see you reacting badly, mm. it's going to filter down through everything. So you need to hold strong right. through this. Right. And, and so there's a, there's an elevation of responsibility as a leader because the people are watching how you respond. Um, why did Nadab and Abihu get consumed? What was the reason? Well, they, whether intentionally or negligently, we're not really clear, did something that the Lord did not command. How much more likely are you to do that if you're wasted? It's a judgment. It's a judgment issue. They're handling sacred things. 
right? They're in the tabernacle in the presence of the Lord with His holy things. And He's, he's saying directly to Aaron, lest you die when you're in the temple, when you're in the tabernacle, don't touch wine or strong drink. And it, it's two separate things. I mean, it's two words for one is for wine and one for strong drink. And strong drink kind of has this idea of more, it's your more heavier liquor. And, and that, that, but it puts them together because you can get drunk with both. And he said, don't be a drunk priest. That's where he goes after consuming his sons. Don't be a drunk priest. Why? Why does he say? Yeah, go ahead. That's right. There are two things he then lays out. He goes to the specific don't drink in the tabernacle and then goes to a general thing. This is the, these are the duties that you're to do. These are the things I'm calling on you to do as leaders in Israel. One is to discern between what is holy and what is profane or holy, unholy, holy and common. What is set apart and what's common. Um, all right. Why is that a big deal? You got to distinguish between the holy and the profane. What, and it's a must. It's a mandatory thing. It's not optional. You got to make those distinctions as a priest. The language here draws a picture of making a separation between two things and, and keeping them apart. And it's crucial for them to distinguish between these things so that the impure does not defile the holy, especially defiling the tabernacle with their own. Impurities. Holy, you remember, is unique and set apart. Profane is what is common. Everybody does it. That's profane. Why would they need to distinguish between these things? Why does that take a lot of mental work such that you shouldn't drink because it might addle your mental work? Shouldn't it be obvious? I mean, shouldn't there be some clear distinction between what's holy and profane? What's holy and common? Why would you need to really think that through? I mean, aren't they given an entire book of the law on those things? Okay. So many commands they have to be familiar with. Is it you got to keep it all together in context and all that? Yeah. When I'm at home, I kill a cow this way. When I'm here, I need to kill it this way. Because it has a different purpose, it has a different function. When I bake bread at home, I break it I bake it this way. When I bring it here, it's got yeah, okay. And also the like, if somebody's there was an analogy I heard it's like if somebody tells you a lie blatantly wrong, I think you may be you're not gonna believe it. But if it's just slightly off truth you're more likely to believe it and you have to really look at it and mm-hmm. see, well, is this, is this 
writers is wrong. So if it's bringing uh, an offering to God, but it's just not quite the way he says it was, mm-hmm. you have to be able to tell that, no, that's not the way God said it was, and you shouldn't do that. Really, what was the difference between the unauthorized fire and the fire that, that they were supposed to bring? I mean, the, the idea was that they both came from the temple grounds, tabernacle grounds. They hadn't left the tabernacle. Why was one fire different? It wasn't what God said. And so to pay close attention to words as they're written requires work. Right? Gosh, I'm so glad we don't do that. It requires work, doesn't it? What else is he supposed to do? You mentioned two things. What was the second thing? To teach. They were to teach the law of God to the people. If they're muddled, uh, <laughs> if they're wasted, they're going to not be able to do that well. And who does that harm? Everybody. Everybody. It harms the people. If they're not making right distinctions between what is holy and profane in their own lives, and then they take that same negligence and apply it to the teaching for other people to follow in their lives, you have compounded error in Israel. You have compounded rebellion against the king in Israel because of the um, disobedience of one or two or three or four. If it becomes common practice. Um, I, I, in my reading this week, I ran across this, um, this section, Second Chronicles 17, uh, in Jehoshaphat's reign, the law was had been forgotten, and he sent out to teach in the cities of Judah officials, Levites, and priests. And they taught in Judah, having the book of the law of the Lord with them. They went about through all the cities of Judah and taught among the people. And these are people who had no training. They had forgotten it. They'd been in rebellion for a while. And so they send these priests out. Now, if, the pri- if, if these two priests that went out with them go out, let me tell you about the law of Moses, and they're knocking back a few, then they're going to teach it wrongly. There's a great responsibility to do that. Um, all right. He talks about the distinctions. He talks about the, um, the, the, what they were called to do. One of the things that hit me looking at this, this is the only, this is the only, um, the only time that, that God speaks to Aaron directly. Um, one of the things that hit me was that there's concern here for Aaron. I mean, we look at this, oh gosh, he's going back to more law. Why was he telling him this? What does he say? I think he's reminding him of what they're supposed to be doing. And like, your sons didn't do this. Right. And he's just, it's not just moving on. It's him saying, remember this is what I'm Remember what just happened in the backdrop of this judgment do this so that you discern rightly what is holy, what is profane, that you teach rightly, my people, lest you what? Lest you die. This is a 
I, I don't view this as, I mean, my initial response to this was, what? Why would you go there? What is, what is going on? This is a concern through a call to obedience. Lest you die. I don't want you to die. I don't want you to do something that has the same effect as what I had to do to Nadab and Abihu. And it will happen because I don't change. Don't do it lest you die. There's concern there through a call to obedience. And we rail against that. Right? I, I don't want to be told what to do. I don't want to be instructed and disciplined and, and held accountable to things. Right? My heart just doesn't want that. But that's where God goes because what they need is. I, I see it that way. That it's a gracious thing. Even though it's a, kind of a harsh looking sounding thing, it's a gracious thing. Yeah, that's right. When he could have not spoken to Aaron, he could have spoken yeah. to Moses, but he knew that Aaron needed to hear him. And what and what you say Aaron needed to hear him, and I think you're right. What does that do to Aaron? To oh wow, what? He's speaking to me? You know, the light, there it is, right there, and I'm speaking to you. What, what does that do to him? It, it focus, it impresses upon him the importance of, lest you die. It's a great, I see this as a gracious thing now. I didn't at the beginning. I see it now. It's a gracious thing to Aaron. Yeah. Um, if you apply this to our own lives, when something bad happens, it's so easy to turn the focus and our perspective inward and to get selfish and to kind of wallow in that. Mm -hmm. But what God is doing is yanking His focus back onto what He needs, back onto His Word. Right. That's the right focus. That's where He needs to be. Yeah. So He's pointing Him to true north. Yeah. And, and He's doing it through, this is what the Lord is saying. This is what the Lord is. The Word of the Lord, again, is calling Aaron to focus. Um, yeah, that's, that's, that's an important point for us. Uh, when... Just some awful things happen in life sometimes. They just do. Uh, and it's real easy, like you say, to get inward focused. And um, um, the Word has a, 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 a function of cutting through that and, and getting us oriented back to it's His world, not mine. Right? Okay. Yeah, and... Um God didn't point Aaron back to the sin either. No. He just pointed him back to his word. And he pointed him back to obedience. Back to the, yeah. To God. And that's, you know, that's where Aaron's focus needs to be, not necessarily on the other side of sin. Do you think that kind Yeah. So there's a there's not a I'm a distant God. I'm talking to you directly. There's a relationship here. You're my high priest, right? You're my uh so there's a, a, a restoration. Notice he didn't say, uh, Aaron, you're such a bad dad. You blew it. We gotta start over somebody else. Um he goes directly to him. 
the uh, the pater familia. Uh, he goes directly to him and does this uh, re- almost kind of like a restoration thing with him. He, don't don't give yourself over to this. Don't fall into this error. And remember the benefits that I'm that I'm pouring out on you as priest and your family as priest. Look what he says next in verse twelve. What's this grain offering? What's that? What's all that about? Moses then speaks to Aaron and his surviving sons. Take the grain offering that is left. What are we? Where is this coming from? What grain offering is left? From the peace offering. They, they're disposing of everything else, but the peace, the the grain part of it had never really been dealt with. So Moses is looking at, uh-oh, this is undone. Let's, I mean, think about it. They're a little shaky, right? Focus is really on what the procedure is, what is God commanded, what what is required of us. They're shaky. And he says, take the grain offering. Um, back in chapter 1 the priests offered a grain offering on the 8th day of their ordination nothing was said what they were to do with the remainder of the grain now they are told they are to eat it that only they can eat it right this grain offering is just for the priests why why is that it's holy remember our distinctions it's most holy it's, a, it's like the same language he uses of the holy place, right? And it's most holy. So, the most holy stuff is eaten by the holy people in the holy place. Distinction. Distinguish what is right and what is profane and what is holy. Um, He's given this to the priests as their due. What else is he given? Where are they to eat this, by the way? What does it say? Beside the altar. That's interesting. Think about this, though. Just from a personal standpoint, Aaron had to feel like a failure. How could he eat the grain offering? It's most holy. How could he do that? Always a good answer in Sunday school. This is what the Lord has said. It's the way Moses says to him. It's not based on you. It's based on what the Lord has said. Eat the grain offering. Not only that, even though Nadab and Abihu failed, Moses emphasizes the privileges of the priesthood have not been lost. God still has Aaron in place. He still has two surviving sons and they still have a due, both of the grain offering, which is theirs at the altar. What else do they still have? The wave offering and the the two pieces of choice meat. The breast and the thigh. They have the they have the the wave offering the, the breast of the beast that they wave, and then also the this thigh portion that they that they have. So they, if it were chicken, they have white meat and dark meat. You know, it's all together. So, um, which I don't think they sacrifice chickens. That's never mind. Um, I went to a church <laughs> when I was a kid. When I was a kid, I went to church. And it was, it was one of those, you know, when you go to charismatic churches, they have all the interesting structures of buildings. Some of them are glass spaceships on the side of 69. Others are, others are big eggs. You know, they're big white domes. 
And the people that lived around the church that we went to used to think that it was just a, it was a, a monument to an egg. And, and they said, hey, the rumor got spread that we sacrificed chickens in the, in the church. Which, I don't know if they do that now, but they didn't do it when I was there. I'm just going to, who knows what kind of craziness people get into. I don't think they do that, I'm kidding. But, but, uh, but anyway, so yes, we didn't sacrifice chickens at that time. Um, they, they have still the privilege, the due, he calls it, of these massive meat portions for whom? Who can eat these? The priests and the daughters too. I mean, he brings in the daughters. The, the priests and their families can eat this meat. That's their due to support themselves. He still has this privilege of having his meat supplied for him. He doesn't have to have a herd. He doesn't have to have a, a garden, a fields. To, and he doesn't because the, inher- the Lord is his inheritance and the Lord is providing for them. He still has this favor of God. Um, but along with the reminder of privilege is a reminder of responsibility. It's remember what happened to Nadab and Abihu. Make sure you perform all ritual matters exactly as the Lord commanded. All right. What do you do with this? You see any parallels? Yeah. What are the parallels? Well, one parallel I see is that we are priests now. Uh-huh. So, nothing that we do makes us holy. It's all what we've been given through the blood of Christ. Right. And so, we can't eat of Jesus. We can't partake of sacraments unless Christ is in us, unless Christ died and applied that to us. And so, the same thing about eating the grain offering and uh, the works and all that stuff is applied to us now as priests. The same analogy is applied to us. If we're a nation of priests, which is what Peter says, he uses the same language, I think that's what you're pulling from. What does that mean about our lives? It's all temple work. Everything we do is sacred until we profane it. Isn't that where the distinction is? Think of the verse Paul talks about don't be drunk with wine but be filled with the Spirit. It's, it's not How do you think of that verse? Uh, it's not just don't drink but it's you know it's the, the whole idea of sober-mindedness and he talks about it in other passages about being clear in our conscience so we don't make stupid decisions. Mm-hmm. You know? and so being filled with the Spirit, you know, we're, we're not dead to deeds and flesh, mm-hmm. but we're alive to God mm-hmm. in, in serving Him fully, you know, circumspectly, whatever. Right. You're fully attuned to His goods. Right. Right. You know, um, one of the things we remember that as long as the sacrifices, as long as, although, I'm going to get it out here in a second. Four and a half hours sleep. All right. Although sacrifices or the ritual priesthood is no longer necessary because of the finished work of Christ, we're still called to discern between what is holy and profane and to teach law, the law and grace of God. Um, one of the goals that, that, that we have for this class is not to produce pew sitters. Yes? <laughs> we want to have church men and women who 
value community, who value what goes on here and what God's called us to do and serve and look for places to be leaders. Uh, not everybody's going to teach, not everybody's going to preach, not everybody's going to, you know, whatever, administrate. Uh, I hope, I hope we have a room for, you know, people who do stuff like that, but I will tell you, you're one-to-ones. If you're leading one, you're teaching. And, and James says this about, about leadership. Um, not many of you should become teachers, my brothers, for you know that we who teach will be judged with greater strictness. Discipleship, leadership carries with it a greater responsibility because of what we see with a priest. It affects other people. Uh, captains on a ship are held to a higher standard. Right? Not because the captains are particularly great people, but because... Some, because what they do affects other people, right? Um, it's to protect the passengers. And though James is talking about offices in the church, the warning is still there to take seriously your calling when you are discipling others. To take that seriously. Uh, and you're going to find yourself taking on roles of teaching and discipling others. Um, just remember to do it well. And that that requires you to be diligent in studying the Word, diligent in prayer, and faithful to grow in holiness in the character of Christ. In other words, it requires you to be a Christian. And if we're all priests, and we're all functioning in a certain way, in a certain section of the tabernacle that we call the church, it, it calls us to be diligent in discerning what is holy and what is profane. Well, in New Testament terms, all of life is sacred. All of life is temple work. And we get drunk with stuff. We get addled. We get confused and muddled on how should I treat this as holy versus how should I treat something as... or do I make it profane by how I treat this? Yeah. One thing that I get drunk on is the busyness of life. I can't focus on temple work and concentrate on what I need to do or spend enough time reading in the Word, or building relationships, or even church attendance. If my life is so busy, and my mind is so pulled by all the different things that I'm doing. Mm -hmm. And I think the clarity of mind that leaves you in drunkenness is the same um, clarity in, in that analogy. Why? And, and I think... And I understand what you're saying. You're right. It's easy to get caught up in busy in busyness. Certainly, I've had our season of it uh, recently. One one of the things that I'm trying to think through in my own work life is that even though it's busy, it's still temple work. Just because I have a hearing to prepare for doesn't make it less holy. I know it's lawyer work, so there's it's suspect, but. Because it's work, and because it's work the Lord has graced me with to do, to support my family and to serve my clients, I need to be thinking of it in terms of this is priestly work. Whatever I do is holy because Christ in me is holy, working through me to do law work. Go figure. <laughs> to do accounting work. God bless you. To teach, to run a store, to serve clients at a store to do whatever to you know whatever you're doing 
to make money for other people and say, hey, I did a good job for you, pay me. I mean, that's, that's a, those are noble callings to nurse, to do things, to help the, i got to hit all the professions, to, to not shoot people whenever you pull them over for a ticket. It's a, kidding. Um, it's all temple work. Cop work is temple work. You know, dealing with the nastiness in the world is temple work. Can you think of it that way? Do you do? I know you have to. You're walking in as a holy man among unholy people going, okay, pull over. What are you doing? That's simple work. It even comes with a uniform. How do we approach that? We approach it in a way that's different than the world. Right? We discern what is holy and what is profane by how we approach it, by what we do. Now, there are, obviously, there are certain things that are innately profane. Some professions are just profane by nature. Hmm. Holy and profane. Okay. Um, nevertheless, let's see. Let no one despise you for your youth, but set the believers as uh, set the believers an example in speech, in conduct, in love, in faith, in purity. Practice these things. Immerse yourself in them so that all may see your progress. Keep a close watch on yourself and on the teaching. Persist in this, for by doing so, you will save both yourself and your hearers. That's Paul's instruction to Timothy. And he's talking about elder work, but I think that applies to everybody as well in your context and what you're doing. Because everywhere you go, you're setting an example. What does it look like to be a Christian? Uh, We are not called upon to be wise and discern between what's holy and profane just for ourselves. Other lives are at stake. All of life is temple work. We take what is sacred and make it profane by our own sinful motives and hearts. Now, because the passage brought this out a little bit, I want to address it briefly. Young Calvinists. Um, Beer is in the temple. Wine is in the temple. Don't profane it. There's a real tendency, I think, and I've seen this in, in groups, not necessarily this group, but there is a real tendency, I think, that because, woohoo, I'm Reformed Baptist. Let's hit the bar. Right? How we approach that issue is particularly sticky. Um, there are times when it may be appropriate. There are times when it's very much not appropriate. And drunkenness is never appropriate. So as we're discerning in our own conscience how to approach that issue, (laughs) be mindful of those around you as well. There are weaker brothers, stronger brother issues there. And I'm not really sure who's the weaker or the stronger on that deal. We'll have to talk about that maybe some other time. But it's a discerning issue. I I got... uh, Well, I don't want to get into that, but... That's an issue. He brings out don't drink in the temple. Uh, in our context, all things may be lawful, but not all things are profitable. Does that make sense? Are you, are you doing an inventory of your refrigerator right now? I, you know, it's, it's okay. Just think through what you're doing and why. Is it lawful? Are you of age? Uh, is it profitable? Are you doing it in a way that is honoring to Christ and not... If we walk into a situation, I'm going to show them how free I am in Christ, let me have a shot. That's 
that's not the right motive, right? It's looking like, oh, what are you doing? Oh, my kids are asking. Okay. Um, all right. Come on, man. All right. Sometimes submitting to one another out of reverence for Christ involves not drinking a beer at a get-together. Sometimes it involves restraining the impulse to puff out your chest and say, I'll show them how to be free in Christ. Uh, here it goes. Everybody does that. That's common. Um, you mentioned work. Uh, we could mention a host of other things. This is one that's kind of brought out by the passage. It takes discernment. Um, shouldn't it be obvious, though, what's holy and what's profane? Right? Should it be obvious? We were talking about this. I think it often is, if you're in the Word at all. But because it's obvious doesn't mean it's easy. Right. It doesn't mean it's what you want to do. I think, I think sometimes the discerning what's right is not the hard part, but the obedience. And what does that point to? If it's the if it's the if it's the doing of it, this is difficult part of it. The understanding is not necessarily that. I mean, there are some things that are difficult to tease out. Laid out a lot of stuff. Yeah. Really plainly. I mean, there still is a call for discernment. Sure. But But obedience plays a part. A major part, in fact. If you're not, if you know it and don't do it, it's even worse, right? Mm-hmm. So we could try to, that's why we have to be And so what does that point to? It points to, once again, our need for Christ. Doesn't it? We often think of the cross as addressing the big sins. Quote, big sins. Do you really think of Christ bearing the sin of just foolishness in drinking or foolishness in not even getting drunk, but just this bad heart motive in doing this. Or, or bearing a sin for foolishness in not viewing maybe work as temple work and trying to cut through and do some stuff. Do we see Christ as being big enough to absorb all those little stuff that we consider little? That He laid out for us and stretched Himself for us for the purpose of helping us and, and taking absorbing God's wrath Nadab and Abihu, wrath for silly, negligent stuff? Do we really think of it in those terms? And in thinking of it in those terms, do we become more heightened in our conscience? I've got to pay attention to this because he, he bore the sin. I don't want to... I have in my head... This may be not an accurate picture, but I have in my head, every time I sin, I'm adding to the cross. I'm adding to the... That's, an, that's, not a, that's probably not a healthy way to think about that. But that's the accounting thing in my head. Um, he took it already. He knew I was going to do it. He took it anyway. But I still, in my head, I was like, oh, I don't want to add to that. You know? That's not a right way to think about it. Realized sin. Realized sin. Yeah. As opposed to realized eschatology. Um, maybe. Maybe. But I think it, but what that probably improper way of viewing it uh, does is heightens my awareness of I need to be conscious of discerning between what is holy and profane. Yeah. You were talking a few minutes ago about discernment and knowing right from wrong. I think that I think that the church and living in right community with other believers really helps discernment. Because lots of times it's so easy to justify something in your own mind mm-hmm. for why you're doing it. But if you have 
believers that know you, know you well, and uh, you have a good enough relationship with them to, that, to where they can speak to you about stuff, mm-hmm. your discernment goes through the roof with their help. Right, right. And because and I'm a half his glass, glass empty kind of guy, also your responsibility goes through the roof because what you do affects more people that you're involved with. And there's always that in the back of our heads, what Jesus said, but whoever causes one of these little ones who believe in me to sin, it would be better for him to have a great millstone fastened around his neck and to be drowned into the depth of the sea. I guess that would be better than being consumed by the fire of the glory of God. I mean, that's really what's at stake in Jesus' mind as to how we treat the little ones. The, 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 the concern that God has how we offend one another and, and to what extent that leads is a great... I mean, he, he may be speaking hyperbole there. I don't know. I hope, I hope not. I mean, I think it's a pretty massive thing is care for his people. Um, he takes how we live seriously because it affects others. He takes the content of our teaching seriously because it affects others. But in doing priest work... Don't forget his benefits. I want to leave, leave here. We've talked about a lot of negative stuff today. I'm going to leave here. Psalm 103. Bless the Lord, O my soul, and all that is within me. Bless his holy name. Bless the Lord, O my soul, and forget not all his benefits, who forgives all your iniquity, who heals all your diseases, who redeems your life from the pit, who crowns you with steadfast love and mercy, who satisfies you with good so that your youth is renewed like the eagles. The Lord's works, the Lord works righteousness and justice for all who are oppressed. He made known His ways to Moses, His acts to the people of Israel. The Lord is merciful and gracious, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love. That statement, the Lord is slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love, do you feel that from Nadab and Abihu? Sometimes it doesn't feel that way, does it? And yet, he probably could have consumed all of them for that. All right. He will not always chide, nor will he keep his anger forever. He does not deal with us according to our sins, nor repay us according to our iniquities. For as high as the heavens are above the earth, so great is his steadfast love toward those who fear him. As far as the east is from the west, so far does he remove our transgressions from us. As a father shows compassion to his children, so the Lord shows compassion to those who fear him. For he knows our frame. He remembers that we are dust. As for man, his days are like grass. He flourishes like a flower in the field. For the wind passes over it and it is gone and its place knows it no more. But the steadfast love of the Lord is from everlasting to everlasting on those who fear Him and His righteousness to children's children, to those who keep His covenant and remember to do His commandments. The Lord has established His throne in the heavens and His kingdom rules over all. It is a... um, I think going through Leviticus, it just gets really heavy. But underlying all of these things with the priesthood is the great benefit that they have, the great um, supply that God gives them as they're doing temple work. And our supply is Christ, the choicest part. We feast on Him. We remember that. Any, any other comments or questions? I'm 
ran a little long, started a little late, just a little bit. Anything else? All right. I'll, I'll pray. Father, it often feels very heavy, uh, the, uh, almost like a burden to, um, to live as a Christian, one who is called upon to read words, to discern what they mean, and then apply it to all the sticky situations of life. But I thank you that in Christ all the treasures of wisdom and knowledge reside. And that as we seek Him, as we feast on Him in the Word, as we um, pray and uh, humble ourselves to seek your face, as we commune with the saints and are taught um, by the, the different uh, pieces of wisdom that you have given to each one of us, that you do what only you can do, which is to shape us into the image of Jesus. Would you do the work on our hearts that let us, lets us see that all of life is temple work and that, and that the, the work that we have in distinguishing between what is holy and what is common is a, is a work that is focused on ultimately just making much of Jesus and how we live. That's our goal. That's our drive. That's our zeal. Would you make it real for us? We pray that um, as we uh, work together in this community, as we love one another as unto Christ, that you would make it effective and that we would be a, a bold witness to the world of what um, what grace, what love the Father has shown upon us that He would give His only Son. We thank You that um, that in doing so You are gathering us to Yourself and are creating for Yourself a people um, who are zealous for good works, serving in Your temple, serving in Your church. In Jesus' name, Amen.